Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, today, uh, we have uh, another really interesting guest uh, with us. We have uh, Dr. Rocio Rosales um, speaking with us today. And uh, we're going to be talking about um, two topics today uh, that are, are at least uh, that, that, that are sort of unrelated, but um, uh, they're both sort of in the scope of the work Dr. Rosales is doing. And, and, and we both kind of found that it would be really important to kind of touch on both. So first, we're going to talk about interteaching, something I had never heard of um, uh, before it just sort of came up in a in, in kind of a news feed, and and I discovered it was behavior analytic, and I discovered that it was something folks do in colleges, and I was like, this is cool. This is something new I don't know about. So, what a great what a what a, what a great thing to kind of talk about. But we're also going to talk about we're also going to kind of switch gears after we kind of dive deep into inner teaching and talk a little bit about some of the projects uh, Dr. Rosales is working on right now, uh, which includes um, a, a cool article that she just put out. Uh, uh, this past spring, uh, in in behavior analysis and practice, on um, uh, essentially on 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 barriers to service for uh, Latino American families uh, raising uh, autistic children, uh, and uh, that I think that's a, a timely conversation, and also related to some other interviews that uh, we have uh, coming up on Behavior Speak. So I think it'll be pretty cool. So welcome to welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I always like to kind of start with, uh, you know, a little bit of an origin story, kind of get an idea of kind of how, you know, uh, the, the journey folks for folks kind of took to kind of find behavior analysis. A lot, most, most folks don't learn about behavior analysis in, in, uh, in, in public, in, in sort of the K to 12 public school system. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, you hear a little bit about psychology or you hear a little bit about helping people or, or, or maybe, uh, the, the the entry point is you know a family member or or a sibling or something like that with uh, you know, that, that has autism uh, and, and and you've heard about behavior analysis that way so often it's folks sort of you know going to university and just sort of discovering something on a on a on a on a job board that seems to be a, a common story and that sort of completely changes the direction of their studies but uh, sometimes we hear some different stories but uh, either either way they're 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 really quite interesting so I'm curious just sort of how do you how do you kind of got in the field how you found behavior analysis and um, and uh, and then and then from there we can uh, we'll talk a little we'll start kind of diving into inner teaching and 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 learn about all that sure yeah. Um, so I think, you know, my, my journey is, uh, I think similar to at least a lot of the people that I know in my own professional circles. And that Mm. is that I was a psychology major, uh, at the university of Nevada, Reno. And I took my first class in behavior analysis, um, as a junior. So, you know, I was kind of uh, taking a bunch of different courses in psychology mm. as uh, psych majors do. And it wasn't until I took the intro to uh, applied behavior analysis course that everything seemed to really come together for me. Of mm. all the courses that I had taken up to that point, this is the one that really just uh, it clicked and made sense. I could see the 
uh, you know, the different uh, contingencies and um, just the principles being applied in my day to day life. Uh, and it, it just made so much sense. Um, the class was taught at the time, this might be um, a, a, a kind of interesting uh, point. Yeah. It was uh, Dr. Larry Williams, who I know is a mm. fellow Canadian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So he was teaching the class at the time. Uh, and then as part of the course, we were required to go out into the field to get, you know, kind of our feet wet with a couple of hours of practice. Hmm. And my experience then was I got to go out and uh, do my very first preference assessment with a, uh, it was um, a young um, uh, adult woman um, uh, who was receiving services Um at a, at a center that provided service behavior analytic services. It was part of the graduate program at University of Nevada, Reno. Mm. Uh, and in that, you know, 30 minute time period, I, I learned how to do a preference assessment. And then wow. from there, I also had an opportunity to get some, um, some other uh, field work experiences as part of my undergraduate training. So I worked uh, as a tutor, they called them child tutors, uh, mm. basically, you know, the equivalent of, of an RBT now, um, providing in-home services to a young uh, boy uh, with autism, um, you know, working with his family and, and doing those home services. And then I also got an opportunity to work with um, Ted Boyce and his graduate students, actually, who were doing some precision teaching Mm -hmm. with uh, elementary school kids, um, you know, typically developing kids on learning, uh, you know, basic academic tasks like spelling and basic arithmetic, um, but really implementing uh, precision teaching into that um, work. So it was kind of like an after school tutoring um, position that I Mm. was able to also just kind of get experience with things like acceleration charts and things like that. Wow. and so, yeah, that's that's how I got my start. And then, you know, I after I finished my undergraduate degree, I I, I was hooked. I knew that I, this is something that I wanted to do as a career. Mm-hmm. So I actively started to pursue and look into, um, you know, graduate training uh, and ended up at uh, SIU Carbondale. So that's where I did my graduate studies and um, was fortunate to have lots of opportunities to do a wide range of uh, applications there, um, working with kids with autism, but also adults with developmental disabilities, working with uh, families who uh, had been, um, who were part of the uh, DCF system and really focusing on parent training to reunify families who had a history of abuse and neglect for their kids. So we were doing parent training in the home and uh, yeah, and then for my dissertation, I, I ventured out uh, to Cobden, Illinois, which is a small town in mm. southern Illinois with a large Mexican immigrant population. Mm. And I was able to um, recruit and, and work with preschool kids that were uh, part of that community. Um, and my dissertation was focused on teaching just rudimentary English vocabulary words using some different behavioral um, interventions. So. Mm. That's uh, that's kind of the short, the short story of uh, just my graduate training. And um, after I've I've completed my doctoral work, I moved right into my first teaching position. So I was at a four-year college in Northeast Ohio. I worked I worked there for four years, and mm. then I'm currently uh, at the University of Massachusetts. Lowell. I've been here since 2013. I'm a tenured professor, and I also coordinate our Master of Science in Applied Behavior Analysis and Autism Studies. Um, so I feel like, you know, um, it, it part of the 
the thing that I really enjoy uh, a lot about being in the position that I'm in is that I get to, um, I, I get to have an influence on the next generation of behavior analysts with our graduate program, but then I also get an opportunity to act actively recruit and actually teach the very same course that got my start in the field, our, our version of the intro to ABA class that uh, we regularly offer to our undergraduate population. Nice. Well, that'll be a nice segue in a second into kind of interteaching because I know mm -hmm. some of your studies involve that exact course um, mm -hmm. and, and, and teaching that in kind of a different way. I, I, I you know, it's, it's, so I'm, I'm, uh, as most folks I think know now that maybe that have listened to a couple episodes, I'm, I'm Canadian and, um, and uh, you know, my experience is entirely Canadian based and it's, you know, when I hear these stories of, uh, you know, uh, 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 from, from guests of, of kind of going into their undergrad and getting exposed to so much behavior analysis, you know, I get, you know, I, 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 I do get a little bit jealous because, mm. um, you know, that was not my experience in my undergrad. When I did my undergrad in psych, it was, there was a, you know, there was a course called learning, um, mm. um, that, you know, you know, I think mentioned a bit, a, a bit of Skinner, a bit of Pavlov, but not too much, you know, there was a bit on sort of, you know, you know, some of those early kind of, you know, like three term contingency, but they didn't call it that. Um, and then it kind of just jumped right into sort of uh, psychopharmacology. And that was about it. But, you know, nothing ever said behavior analysis in, in, in a book, mm. at least that I recall. Um, and certainly, and so as soon as you said, you know, University of Nevada, Reno, like, I mean, we, we, we've, uh, you know, there's been a, a lot of guests that have sort of talked about that place as sort of being, mm. you know, one of one of one of the great spots to go to for, you know, especially if you're interested in sort of RFT and ACT and kind of those kinds of things. And um, and and so, you know, just sort of hearing, you know, the, the, those experiences and, and and getting that sort of introduction is so much different than than us, where, you know the stories for Canadians are, are, are usually, um, you know, quite different because we don't have sort of the, we, we now have a couple programs that do sort of undergrad focus on, on ABA and maybe six or seven now across the country. Mm. Um, and, uh, maybe a little more than that, but, um, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this. I think I just, I guess just my point is, is, is it's, it's just so interesting to hear about sort of, you know, the opportunities and exposure to behavior analysis, you know, young students in the States have compared to sort of everywhere else in the world. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, and, and kind of how it shapes things. You know, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I'm, one of the projects that I'm actually currently working on is related to um, getting information from folks who are involved in the development of undergraduate programs, specifically in behavior analysis. And, mm. you know, we, to your point, I think that, yeah, we have a lot more in the U.S. And, uh, compared to even Canada, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, I, I didn't know that. So that's the news to me. I, I knew that there were a few programs, but not not as limited as you're as you're saying. Yeah. Um, and just kind of thinking about, yes, there are undergraduate programs in behavior analysis, but my thought is that there's probably not enough and uh, certainly not enough for us to continue to grow the field and not just the uh not just within the domain of applied behavior analysis but also you know with experimental analysis of behavior uh and thinking about how we can 
continuously uh, recruit and train students to continue on this path as a career, mm-hmm. um, I think that the development of the ECBA and BCABA and RBT credentials have all been uh, really great in helping to really forge a path in giving opportunities for a profession to develop. But as far as mm-hmm. kind of thinking about also the varied applications of behavior analysis that we know exist and how we can um, just expose more people to behavior analysis uh, while they are at their undergraduate institution. Um, I we The colleagues that I'm working with on this project all have undergraduate uh, programs that are a little bit different, but we all suspect that there are not enough programs and that there may also be some challenges actually to being able to develop new programs at the undergraduate level. And that's one of the things that we're we're going to be interested in um, getting some information about, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I could kind of just, again, think of my own trajectory uh, in my undergraduate education. Like I said, it wasn't actually until my junior year as an undergrad that I even Mm. knew about behavior analysis. Mm -hmm. And if I hadn't taken that class, which wasn't a required course in my Mm. program, I just kind of happened to select as an elective. I wouldn't have been exposed to behavior analysis. And I think now as a as an instructor as a faculty person in our department and we again we have a a concentration in behavior analysis at the undergraduate level a lot of the comments that students often give give to us uh, once they go through one or two of our courses um, it's like I wish everyone could take this class I wish everyone was required to take this class because Mm. even if I'm not going to continue in this path as a career in behavior analysis and I go into school psychology or counseling or, um, you know, even public health or Mm -hmm. just, you know, a different area uh, or even for my own personal, um, using this in my own personal life. uh, It's just, you know, it's changed me and it's changed my worldview at the undergrad level. We're able to do this. So, you know, I think that, you know, the more people that we can expose and, you know, the best way I think to try to capture a captive audience is, is through undergraduate education. But yeah, that's, that's a great, um, it's interesting to hear you, Mm -hmm. to hear you say that, especially given, you know, this, this kind of uh, ongoing project that we have um, that we're trying to get off the ground still, but we'll be (laughs) hopefully be able to, to get some movement on it soon. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and it's a couple of things. It's weird. like, and first off, I, I think I, I, I'm going to have some people writing letters uh, because uh, there, there's there's more programs than that. I think maybe it's more like 20, but that's still not a lot. Sure. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think the bulk of them are in Ontario. I know we have two in British Columbia, which is interesting being that we're probably the second largest population of behavior analysts. Um, mm. we don't, but we, we have even less graduate programs, right? Mm. Uh, which, which is sort of interesting too. And, and, and um, you know, like uh, I, I think for, to, to, get a, to get a master's in, in sort of something related to ABA, I think there's what, one, two, three, three or four universities in Canada. Mm. Um, and then to get a doctorate, well, Gosh, uh, uh, I think now we're down to to, to one or two, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and what's interesting is is the the those undergrad programs aren't in the same schools as the graduate programs, mm. right? So you know UBC where I went, which is you know the largest university in British Columbia, uh, has a 
great master's program, but the, the undergrad programs have no courses whatsoever related to sort of, uh, you know, uh, applied behavior analysis. Um, and uh, so it's interesting. So, I mean, I think it's interesting when that, cause I hear a lot of stories of folks getting that undergrad exposure and then continuing on and, and you know, and meeting some folks then continuing on to do their graduate work at the same school often, cause that's where they live mm-hmm. or whatnot, you know? And so, um, and so and it's also kind of the reasoning for for training. Uh, the funding levels are so, our models are so different in Canada. Like everything's entirely government funded. We don't have insurance um, coverage for ABA and and Ontario and British Columbia being the two largest provinces doing this work. Both governments have recently changed their funding models to. Um, uh, you know, uh, resulting in a lot of protests and, and mm-hmm. they haven't made necessarily mm-hmm. good changes or informative changes, I should say. Ontario has been just sort of bad changes and, and, and BC, they just started some changes in the last month, actually, mm-hmm. uh, essentially announcing that they're going to eliminate all the funding and change it to something completely different. But we're not going to tell you what that means until later. Oh, wow. <laughs> so a lot of people are stressing out right now. And, and hopefully sure. folks, by the time folks hear this episode, uh, will know more information on those things. But but it, uh, you know, if the funding models go away, you know, will the, will will these university programs even still exist? Is really my main point. Um, uh, because, right. Because what's the point of training BCBAs if they can't get a job um, anywhere? Um, so yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's, it's a bizarre. Yeah. Well, and I think I don't know. I think what I'm thinking now, as you're saying that, is I think all the more reason to kind of think about expanding how. Uh, behavior behavior analysis is viewed and then yeah definitely looking at the job prospects and Mm -hmm. if you're if there aren't I mean you know we know that 90 percent or more of the uh, practitioners that are working on the field in the U.S. and you know worldwide are working in the autism um, field because of uh, insurance Mm -hmm. uh, reimbursements that are able to fund those jobs and um, you know part of what we do in our undergraduate concentration is try to really place a lens on the varied applications of behavior analysis. And there aren't uh, as many jobs, obviously, right now, but I think Mm -hmm. moving in the direction of trying to figure out how those can be something that can be developed and created um, for for that same reason, right? Like if if that funding were to ever go away, which I don't think is going to happen, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, in the U.S. um, ever. uh, But I think that if if there aren't any other options then yeah you're right then you know the 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 risk is that you can lose the graduate program that is developed because if that's the only thing that people mm-hmm. are doing mm-hmm. um then i think we run that risk and then you know there's also the gap between basic and applied uh research and then also mm. just the difference in the numbers of people who are trained in um experimental analysis of behavior is basic um uh, scientists and uh, doing basic research mm. um i think that we probably definitely need more <laughs> of uh of uh, those behavior analysts that are being mm-hmm. trained and working out in the field in order for our our field to continue to to survive and thrive into you know decades um decades from today yeah no and that's another whole other point i mean and and, and sort of experimental analysis of behavior sort of programs are even more sparse in Canada, mm. uh, you know, like, uh, you know, even, even sort of, you know, uh, I was talking to, I was talking to Natalia about this a bit. We're talking about um, Skinner and kind of how he's, um, um, you know, cause we, we didn't even learn about Skinner 
very much in our program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we read two papers, certainly didn't read any of his books, um, and, um, and nor were we encouraged to. Um, uh, but Natalia and I were sort of talking about, you know, but is that such a bad thing? I mean, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I think sometimes we sort of, uh, glorify folks maybe a little too much just because they were the first to do things. Um, and, uh, we sort of talked about sort of, um, uh, well, well, we'll leave that for that episode, but, um, um <laughs> sounds uh, good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, that does kind of give a, a, an interesting kind of segue into kind of this topic in, in that sort of um because um, we're going to talk about, we're going to sort of talk about sort of behavioral or, or behavior analysis sort of informed um you know, kind of teaching procedures and whatnot and one thing that's again interesting about the program that i went to at ubc uh was it was a um uh, it was essentially a special education program. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and, and in hindsight, I think it'll actually stay. It'll stay in operation because its primary purpose wasn't what was to train teachers and to train, you know, mm-hmm. special educators. So, I think it'll it'll stick around. But, um, um, but what was interesting is that the education program at that university, so the general education program, located in the same building, located in the same floor um you know of the same building they don't communicate um and so none of the great sort of teaching strategies that are taught mm. in sort of the special education program make it into the general education program now that 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 was the case seven or eight years ago i don't know if things have changed um and so that's going to lead to kind of a question i'm going to ask in a little bit about sort of you know um and and maybe I'm asking this from a Canadian perspective as well. I'm getting at this at, at sort of why we don't use more of these sort of behaviorally based kind of um, um, teaching methods, you know, you know, in in teaching. Um, but we're, but before we get to that, um, we're going to talk about inner teaching in general here a little bit. And so I, I know I, I I kind of I chose uh, Dr. Rosales to talk about. Um, Inner teaching, and it's, there's a lot of folks that have been kind of involved in inner teaching um, uh, and, uh, and doing that kind of research. But uh, to be honest, um, uh, of all the names involved, yours, yours was the only one I had heard of, um, and uh, uh, and I heard some of some of the other good work you were doing. So that would just be fun to kind of have you come on. Um, uh, inner teaching is something again I've never heard of. So um, uh, until sort of kind of discovering some of your work. So maybe we could just kind of start up by asking sort of what, what is inner teaching and, 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 and kind of who came up with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had never heard of inner teaching until I, I heard of inner teaching too. So I think <laughs> it, it probably happens that way. And and for me, yeah. my experience was uh, back at a, a conference, ABAI conference in 2010, when mm. I attended a symposium that Brian Seville, who has done a lot of work, um, in inner teaching and published mm. a lot of articles in inner teaching was presenting on and you know he was giving an overview and um and then talked about some of the work that he was doing so mm. the seminal article on inner teaching was published by uh Ted Boyce and Phil Heinlein back mm. in 2001 or 2 I don't remember the exact year off the top of my head and they published it as a way to introduce this model that, you know, that they were essentially taking, I think, from experiences that they had in their own uh, teaching experiences as faculty members, and then incorporating behavioral principles into 
the work that they were doing. So they didn't actually have, I don't believe, any data at the time to support these this specific model, but they really based it off of other behavioral teaching strategies. In particular, they talk about the personalized system of instruction as being influential uh, in this, and then also precision teaching. Um, so in a nutshell, you know, I think if I had to describe inner teaching, um, so it's a it's a be- behavioral teaching approach that um, it emphasizes uh, self-directed learning um, mm. and it has contingencies in place for students to that encourage students to uh, to prepare for class. Um, and it also has components where they're getting frequent opportunities to uh, perform and to get feedback on their performance. Um, and one of the key things that I think is also important with inner teaching is that it really it really relies on uh, cooperative uh, peer learning to mm. foster that student engagement that we want to see when students are attending uh, college classrooms. Um, so it moves away from the instructor being, and this is a, a term that's used in a lot of uh, the publications on inner teaching, a, a sage on the stage mm. <laughs> to being somebody who is, uh, you know, being more uh, facilitative of the mm. learning that's happening in the classroom. Um, so essentially moving away from a traditional lecture model that I think unfortunately sometimes is still heavily relied on by mm-hmm. uh, faculty at uh, universities and and really trying to incorporate how we can promote active student um, engagement in order to improve learning, which is the primary outcome that we're looking for. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to know the three secret words and then enter those secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is patriarchy. Right on, right on. Um, Okay, so... And does does inner teach what maybe just briefly because you know when we train for when we you know when grad students are kind of training for or not training but sort of uh, working towards their their kind of BCBA credential mm-hmm. and um, you know you know I always remember the the, the requirements for you know on, on the exam and doing sort of the mock exams and those sorts of things and actually writing the actual exam you know there might have been you know. A lot of these sort of behavioral sort of thing components that you're sort of proceed principle or not principle sort of areas that you kind of talked about um, are, are mentioned so briefly. Persistent teaching, I think there was mm-hmm. one question. Uh, mm-hmm. PSI, there might have been one question. Direct instruction, there might have been one question, and and I think all of them were sort of you know um, who was the guy mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. that came up with it or whatever or. Or um, you know, or, or, or a very or obviously a super broad question, and so it's none of this stuff is considered really important, at least from the perspective, or seems to be not considered very important from the perspective of of of, of you know folks like the BACB and whatnot. At least when when they're creating their exams, it seems to be a lot more focused on some of these other things, um, which 
seems strange to me because these are methods that, you know, uh, have been shown, you know, in, in, in the research to be just, you know, so much more, so much better as far as kind of, you know, gaining outcomes, but nobody knows anything about them. Like, like what is PSI? Sure. So personalized system of instruction. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty elaborate model, but essentially, again, it emphasizes um, student participation where they get units of material. Uh, mm. So I actually went through my first intro to psych course at the University of Nata Reno. It was a PSI system. I, I don't know if it still is. Wow. And so essentially what, what happens is that students are getting uh, all the they have the opportunity to work at their own pace mm -hmm. uh, through the material that's going to be covered over the course of a semester. Mm. And the way that it worked when I was a student, and you know, again, it's it's a, it's a model that you know is is followed with all PSI systems, is that you get information at the beginning of uh, a week, um, and you are responsible for doing the reading uh, in order to prepare for an assessment or a quiz at the mm. end of a certain time period. And so in in some courses and the way it worked when I when I was a student at UNR is that I had the capability to work one chapter at a time through my intro to psych textbook mm. and then uh, then had an opportunity to just schedule my own quiz or assessment during by a specific deadline. So there are some uh, contingencies in place to prevent students from completely waiting until the end of the semester to try <laughs> to get all 16 chapters uh, right. covered. So you work one chapter or one unit at a time. You have an opportunity to uh, for somebody to evaluate your performance, sometimes through a quiz. And then if you if you don't perform at a certain above a certain criterion on that quiz, you have an opportunity to get additional tutoring feedback from somebody, usually a teaching assistant. And then retake that quiz up to a, num a certain number of times, sometimes one or two, two more times, um, in order to meet the criterion. So, um, essentially, it's you know it, it's um, uh, you're, you're you have the opportunity to to master all this material, mm. work at your own pace, and then potentially be able to finish the course in in a shorter period of time than the 15, 14 or 15 weeks that are a traditional semester. Mm. And the key thing is, is that you're working at your own pace. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, when, when you're in a classroom setting and you're the instructor and you're trying to, um, and you use lecture, which I think has a place and should be incorporated. It's part of inner teaching as well. Mm. Um, sometimes it's hard. It is difficult to uh, really be able to manage and capture students' motivation and attention because they're all really working at different levels. Mm -hmm. Some of them are uh, more prepared than others. Some of them are very underprepared for the experience of being in a classroom environment at the college level. And so inevitably, even though, even if you're an amazing lecturer and you try to engage students in discussion and really promote active participation, um, what ends up happening, even in a small classroom with 25 to 30 students, and then, you know, let alone when classrooms get bigger to 60, 80, 100 plus students, you're, you're going to see that participation comes from only a certain number of students in the class. Uh, and you, of course, can do things to try to promote 
participation from those students who aren't already uh, giving um, or behaving in the way that mm-hmm. you want them to. But inevitably what happens, you're not going to be able to capture everyone. Right. And usually that's because they're at a different level. Um, the, the, you know, they're understanding the material at a different mm-hmm. level. And so with personalized system of instruction, the key is that they give students the opportunity to work at their own pace. They get multiple opportunities to um, to engage with the material to uh, to perform to the level that's required. Um, and, you know, again, can actually complete a course in, in a shorter period of time. Mm-hmm. I think the what's been cited as a reason why this is not widely adopted is that yes. it, it tends to require a lot of administrative arrangements that sometimes uh, administrators don't like to have to do. You know, mm. for one, sometimes you may need um, a lot of hands on deck if you have a large classroom. So some universities have the privilege of having a lot of teaching assistants for mm. uh, one classroom or one section of a course. I, I think that that's uh, few and far between. I, th- I don't think it's common that that happens, that it's possible, but it's, mm. it's not common that you can have multiple teaching assistants helping with the course. Um, the other thing that I've seen uh, noted quite a bit is that universe when you use personalized system of instruction, because um, you are giving multiple multiple opportunities. It's mastery based, right? So you have multiple opportunities to move on to the next section. You can't actually move on to the next unit until you've demonstrated mastery on the previous unit. Mm. And so that means that you're great over the course of the semester. You're gonna, you know, it, it's mastery based. You're gonna do very well in the course, or you may not complete it. So there's mm. the, you know, either you do very well or you or you get an incomplete, maybe you fail. And so you don't get that nice bell-shaped curve in final grades. And then so the suspicion is that there might, there's grade inflation happening. Um, and, mm. you know, I don't completely understand the rationale for why that's a problem, but, mm. you know, we're seeing students perform well on their courses. Do we want that to happen? We have a system in place to essentially ensure that all students will perform at their best level. Um, but again, I've seen it kind of noted as a limitation of why uh, it's not why the system is not widely adopted. It tends to be uh, pretty intensive as far as resources that are required. And then, you know, this this issue about the, the suspicion of great inflation uh, often happens. Um, and then with so the other one that I mentioned was precision teaching. Mm. And one of the key components that's integrated into inner teaching uh, with precision teaching is the time practice. So essentially, with precision teaching, you have really complex behaviors that are broken down into smaller pieces or mm. simpler component skills. Yep. Um, and so that's integrated in, into inner teaching in a variety of ways. One, you're breaking up sections of information uh, over the course of several weeks, and then you have multiple opportunities for students to respond to questions. So um, I, I didn't do this already, but I don't know if you want me to go back and kind of talk about the different components of inner teaching. I can do that briefly. That was going to be my next question. So okay. because because let's give folks an idea sort of uh, of what all these parts are and kind of how they work. So yeah, let's let's do that. Sure. Yeah. So again, this was first the you know it was first uh, described in that seminal Boyce and Heinlein article, and then several people have. Um, summarized in in, in different um, peer-reviewed uh, pieces, but essentially there's six components in our teaching, and the way they describe these six components is that they should work together, uh, but there's also flexibility built mm. into this model, meaning that when you look to see how this is actually implemented both in research and in practice, 
um, what we find is that people are doing, uh, people are implementing interteaching in a variety of different ways, sometimes not necessarily incorporating all of these six components. So the first component is that they recommend that you incorporate what they call preparation guides. So essentially a prep guide is similar to a study guide. The way that I describe it to my students is that you know, think of this as a study guide that you're getting, not for midterm and final, you're actually getting a study guide for every single unit or chapter, um, sometimes multiple prep guides per chapter, depending on the number of pages that you're covering. And you, we want you to complete these prep guides before you come to class. On the day that on the syllabus, it says the prep guide is due, you should have this preparation guide, which has 10 to 12 questions maximum. Um, related to the reading that you have assigned for that class period. So it, it creates this contingency where, you know, you, you, um, you're requiring students to do what they really should be doing in all their classes, which is opening the book and reading <laughs> the material before they right. come to class. Right, right. And then the questions, you know, can range from um, it, it in general, it's, it, I always recommend when I'm sharing for others to, to develop a prep guide that it really should follow Bloom's taxonomy. And there's this, you know, six levels of Bloom's taxonomy. You go from basic knowledge questions that, you know, you're just asking students to go and look for an answer in the book, but mm. not all the questions in the prep guide should be knowledge-based. So there should be some application questions. There should be some synthesis questions. There should be, um, you know, um, some comprehension questions uh, and really kind of moving from the simpler uh, questions that they can kind of go back, definitions, vocabulary, um, visual representations of things to more comprehension application, and then analysis and synthesis questions that um, promote critical thinking that are not things that they're going to be able to find in a textbook, but they really have to show how they're applying their knowledge. So that's the prep guide. And again, it's, um, you know, 10 to 12 questions is the recommendation that I think that uh, I often hear and, and what I follow, and that it really should be a combination of all these questions, not purely knowledge-based. The second component is the pair discussion. So the idea is that students come prepared for class, they have their prep guide completed when they arrive to class, they're going to have an opportunity to, uh, to talk to a classmate about their answers to this prep guide. Uh, and so they, the, the term that was coined was a pair discussion. And the emphasis here was that it really should be a pair, not a small group of three or four or five. But if we're following this, this uh, interteach model, it's a pair discussion. And the reason why that is recommended is, um, you know, if you start to get groups of three or even a group of three, the likelihood that there's an opportunity for that third person to not participate as much for for different reasons, maybe they're not as comfortable sharing, maybe they didn't complete the prep guide to the, right, uh, right, to right. the level that we would expect, um, versus if it's just you and somebody else having a conversation, um, there's less opportunity for what people, what's been called social loafing, right? So, yes. you know, you, you can't have a one-sided or it's very awkward to have yeah. a one-sided conversation. Yeah. Um, so the emphasis is on having that pair discussion. And during the pair discussion, the instructor uh, is encouraged to facilitate uh, these discussions by kind of walking around the classroom and checking in, listening in how things are going, answering questions, maybe probing if, if students are saying, oh, I'm all done with my discussion, probing to see like, oh, what did you get for question number four? What did you guys come up with? 
uh, things like that. At the end of the pair discussion, the third component is that the students are given an opportunity to give feedback to the instructor. This is something that I really like about mm-hmm. this model is that I'm getting feedback from every single student um, over the course of the semester, many, many times over. Mm. Uh, and the feedback is really intended to um, for a few things. They rate the quality of the discussion. They tell the instructor what they still need help with after they've had an opportunity to talk to their classmates. So there's, you know, uh, they, it's a it's a r- small uh, sample of writing that they give, like what went mm. well, what do you still mm. want me to, to go over? And then the idea is that you use those feedback forms to inform your clarifying lecture. So that's the fourth component, a clarifying mm. lecture. So there's still lecture involved in interteaching, mm. but the lecture is informed by what the students are telling you that they need more help with. Awesome. As you teach the class, if you're teaching classes, the same course over the you know time that you're, you're a faculty person, you're going to be able to identify the topics that are traditionally, historically more difficult for students to, uh, to really grasp. Um, so, you know, the idea is that you are modifying your lecture every single um, time that you teach the class. But in reality, I think what happens is that, yes, you, you obviously do want to look at the feedback and, and uh, answer questions that students have because they may vary from time to time. But once you've gone through a full cycle of using inner teaching, those clarifying lectures probably will stay pretty much the same. Mm. Um, The fifth component is that you're doing frequent assessments, so frequent testing. So moving away from a midterm final, which I hope nobody does anymore, but Mm. probably still happens, um, you're doing more frequent tests. So whether that's four or six times per semester, or more often. So I often, uh, what I do in, in, in my model when I've used inner teaching is that I usually have a unit quiz. So that covers two to three chapters mm. at the end of each week. And then on top of that, I also have cumulative exams that happen over the course of the semester, um, just in larger chunks that are mm. worth a little bit more uh, as far as their grade. And then the final component is uh, something that Boyce and Highline term quality points. So Quality points, essentially, uh, it's an added contingency for the pair discussion. So we want high quality pair discussions. We want to see that the students are engaging with the material, that they're really uh, thinking about the material and not just kind of going through the prep guide. It's like, oh, what'd you get for number one? Oh, I got that Mm. too. What'd you get for number two? Yep, same here. What'd you get for three? Okay, (laughs) good. That they're actually sharing examples, that they're questioning each other, that they if they disagree on something, they have a discussion, a true discussion about why that, you know, why that might happen. And if mm. they have questions that they bring in, that they, you know, raise their hand and, and have an opportunity to talk to the instructor one-on-one. So with the quality points, uh, the way that this is recommended to that, that it be used is that there might be one question on the quiz or the assessment that if both students in that, um, in that pair for that day perform well on that question or they get it right, they get some added bonus points to that quiz. Um, And if they don't, then they don't get the bonus points. So it doesn't impact the grade on the actual quiz, but if they do well, then they're getting a little bit more than they would have otherwise. Hey, that's cool. Yeah. And and I was reading a little bit about some of these steps. Um, um, And I I just, I I like, I I just like how there's like that, those pieces to kind of, um, you know, the, the, the contingencies, as you say, to, mm-hmm. to, to sort of ensure that that these things are done kind of the way they're intended. How. So we talked to just you talked to briefly before we kind of got into the components about, you know, uh, resources and, 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 and you know, and, and, and sort of the difficulty maybe that 
administrators might have in, in, in sort of, you know, having folks facilitate these. What, so make, first question, I guess, is, are, do you use inner teaching in, obviously you do use it, but do you use it in, in all your courses? Uh, I don't. I use variations of it in my courses, but I don't use the full model in mm. my in all of my classes. Right. For my undergraduate courses, I've, I've implemented inner teaching for every single class. And I don't think that I would move away from that model um, now that I've done it for so long. In the graduate courses that I teach, I've started to implement components of it, especially the kind of the pair discussion piece. Uh, and um, I mean, that's actually the piece that I incorporate a lot. So getting students to talk to one another, whether it be about, you know, a specific assignment or in, um, giving them a, a, an activity to work on. Um, uh, we use, uh, we require students in our graduate program in ABA to um, to meet a certain competency for technical terminology. And so we mm. incorporate staff meds into sure. their coursework. So I I do a lot of uh, having them quiz each other at the beginning of each class period kind of thing. And that's really the component that I've uh, been able to incorporate pretty easily into my courses. And I think that just giving opportunities for students to talk to one another, share mm. their experiences um, has been well received. So, you know, the reason why I don't have an incorporated mm -hmm. full model into some of my graduate courses is really just depending on the course that I teach. So right now I teach the our practicum course sequence in our program. So there's actually not a lot of lecture that happens in that right. class. Really the um, assessments and things are things that they're writing. Um, yes. I give them multiple opportunities. So I, mm. I do incorporate that piece. So I give them feedback on written assignments and then give them the opportunity to resubmit assignments for a percentage of the points that were lost in the, in the initial submission. So that nice. is embedded into my class. Um, and then, you know, sometimes there isn't really, um, any kind of set reading either that they're doing it's mm. more discussion based and then for our for the practicum course it's really about thinking about case studies and things like that so mm. um but you know i i know that other people definitely have incorporated um the full inner teaching model into more traditional graduate coursework in behavior mm. analysis so are there are there then I mean, obviously, practicums are, are 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 sort of they're they're obvious, but are there are there um, you know, do you essentially need to have something in place in order to 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 do to do inner teaching? Like, do you need to have some sort of readings or some sort of you know a lecture or whatever? Like, like how like how do you know whether inner teaching can work or not? Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's that's a a great question. I think. Um, so, so I think the benefit of inner teaching is that you actually don't have to have one, you don't have to have administrators, administrative support because it's it's really the burden is really on the instructor um, to incorporate all of these or a portion of these components into the course, which which honestly is uh, tends to be just more of a response effort for that person that's developing the class in general. Now that I've been teaching for um, a little over a decade, it's easier for me to just kind of lecture on material that I have a lot of familiarity with. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's harder for me to think about how am I going to develop a, for example, a preparation guide that is going to be not only useful for the student, but that's going to get at mm. thinking about the material that I want them to learn. Um, 
so as far as whether or not it's a good fit for your course, I think, you know, thinking about um, prep guides, I think the way that I've thought about them traditionally is that it is tied to reading, but honestly, it, it doesn't actually have to be. I think you can develop a prep guide really based on any material that you want students to to learn and to have familiarity with before they come to class. Uh, so it could be, you know, um, it could be a webinar that they're watching, or it could be even listening to podcasts and you have questions that are, mm. um, you know, developed yep. from that. Yep. Um, it, it's just any material that you want them to get exposed to before they come to, to uh, either listen to you or, or talk to you and your and their classmates about the material. Um, the, the goal is really to give them multiple opportunities to get exposed to that material. So in more traditional formats, you know, if we think of kind of, you know, just the, the, the basic traditional format of a college classroom, um, students come to class, they take notes. Uh, again, you can have a lecturer who's very, uh, very engaged and very enthusiastic, and they may love that person um, who's lecturing because they're, you know, they're inspirational. And, you know, we, I know people like that, um, that, you know, they're just amazing. They capture people's attention. Um, uh, people love listening to them because they're just, they're very good uh, public speakers. Mm. We don't know how much they're lear people are learning mm -hmm, from actually mm -hmm. listening to those um, lectures, right? And, and so I think um, at the kind of the the basic this basic model or, or traditional model of like, well, you just show up to class and you listen to the material once, and it can be really exciting, but then how much are you actually retaining? What yeah. are you learning? So with this model, the idea is that you're giving them minimum three opportunities to engage in the material. So first, you read it on your own or you listen to it on your own. You watch it on your own if it's a video. And then you respond to some probes, questions related to that material. You come to class and then you interact with somebody else who's also watched the video, done the reading, listened to the podcast. You talk about the mm -hmm. answers to your questions. So that's the second opportunity now that you've had. And then now... The clarifying lecture that the instructor is going to give really serves as a reinforcer for everything that you already have been exposed to. Uh, and there might be a couple things that you're still unclear about or you want to have more examples of or you just want to hear what they have to say. Uh, and you're probably going to get a lot more out of that lecture than you would if you just stepped in and listened to it without any background. Um, so I think that, you know, that that's really the key difference. And again, as far as integrating into a class, it really can be done. I think there is that flexibility built in where it doesn't necessarily have to be that you're assigning, um, you know, articles or, or book chapter. It could be any content you want them to get exposed to. You can develop a prep guide, have them complete it, talk about it uh, with, you know, within the time period of the class. So there's, again, that flexibility with the pair discussion, right? So Boyce and Heinlein, again, recommend that, that they that people use pair discussion, but there is a lot of uh, variability in research and practice. So there's been publications. One of the studies that I did yeah. back back in 2000, I don't know when it was published, but we looked at the difference between um, small groups of three to four versus a little bit larger group of five to six students. Um, it was a, uh, I think it was a larger classroom mm -hmm. too at the time. So it, it meant that I had just less groups to kind of make sure that I visited during the class time. Um, and then when we looked at the outcomes, so just kind of comparing what happens to student outcomes on their performance on quizzes mm. um, when they are in small versus larger groups, there really wasn't any significant difference mm. in their performance. And 
uh, we also, in the studies that I've done, we typically also routinely ask um, some questions related to social validity. So which which method did you prefer? Mm. If we're looking at uh, different uh, different size groups, did you like the smaller versus the larger group? And there's always in idiosyncratic differences in how students are responding. But in general, when we ask these questions, students tend to prefer the inner teach model, whatever that looks like to a more traditional model. And then when it comes to like small versus larger groups, I think that um, they're just reporting that they like interacting with, with, with other students. Uh, and one of the most recent, um, I think there was a meta-analysis that was published very recently, uh, just this year mm-hmm. on inner teaching where they looked at all the different components and, you know, which one is the mo- the one that really is um, making the biggest difference is, you know, we have these six different things that we're saying we should be incorporating, right. but is there one piece that really makes a difference? And the research to date is really pointing to the pair discussion. Like mm. that's really what is having an influence on um, both how students are performing and then how they are, uh, reporting that they perceive the content and the class in general. Now, there hasn't been, at least not that I know of, a, a kind of a study that has truly isolated um, pair discussion compared to like all the other components, mm. prep guides, feedback forms, clarifying lectures. So it would be interesting to um, to look at that, to say, what if we just had a class where you know we do away with the prep guide and everything else, but we just have, a, you know, students uh, engage with each other somehow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we give them an activity to do related to the content. We have them talk about it. And then, um, and then you know, we see what that does to their performance versus we give them the prep guide and they give and we get clarifying lectures and they still do frequent testing and assessments, but there's no no discussion, mm-hmm, no mm-hmm, no classroom mm-hmm. discussion, either with pairs or small groups. And I think that that would kind of help to isolate the impact that this has. Um, and, you know, it makes sense. I think there's other models outside of um, behavior analysis in higher ed that have looked at things like a flipped classroom and there's something called think pair share. Yes. Um, that, you know, it basically is recommending that we do this more in classroom settings that we get students to talk to each other we get students to engage to share um to share their perspective um and that that's going to likely be likely to enhance learning uh, over the course of a of a semester or trimester what are some of the so we kind of talked about you know there's all these different components and things that the students have to do what 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 is the teacher doing during all this? Like, what's the teacher behaviors during interteaching? The second secret word is feminism. Mm-hmm. Well, the first piece is you know developing the high quality prep guides. Right. I think um, I think that there's a lot that goes into the the development of a prep guide. I think, um, you know, what I've seen. And this, again, is something that sometimes is a barrier because people, once they develop a class and to think that, you know, they would have to essentially revamp their entire class after going through a course prep, it takes a lot of time to develop a course from the ground up to say, like, I'm going to now do this differently. Um, People just don't have a lot of time to do that. So then sometimes that's a barrier because Mm -hmm. developing Mm -hmm. that prep guide as the instructor 
again, you really want to not just pull questions that are maybe part of your um, instructor guidebook uh, or manual that are given to you. Right. You want to incorporate your own and and that t- just it just takes time. So so that's a big piece that I think is upfront, like an upfront um, cost that the instructor has to um, really commit to. And then during the actual pair discussion, so again, if it's in a pair or a small group, um, what I typically do is uh, I will just walk around the room and uh, I will often stop and listen in to see how things are going. If there's a great discussion happening or students are, you know, um, uh, sharing information with each other, I won't interrupt the conversation, but I'll make a a note to kind of try to come back to that group. And Mm. then if I come across a group who's maybe kind of just staring at their (laughs) computer paper, I will ask something to think like, oh, how's, how are things going? And then sometimes I'll, you know, they'll say, oh, well, you know, we're not sure about this question. So we're kind of thinking about, you know, why we came up with a different answer. And so that'll be an opportunity for me to, you know, to help if if they are really stuck. Uh, or uh, sometimes if if I'm walking around and they're silent, I'll, uh, I'll say, oh, well, how are things going? And they might say, oh, it went really well. And we're actually already done. And we're only like, you know, five minutes in into a, a time period that the pair discussion, you know, depending on the time that you have, it should be about a third of the time that you're in, mm. um, doing this. So, um, if they're if they're done, quote unquote done with their discussion after five to ten minutes, I it's a red flag for me to be like, well, oh, so what did you come up with? What did mm-hmm. you guys, what did you all think about this question? Tell me about it. Mm. And inevitably, what happens, um, or in my experience, is that you know students will say, oh, well, you know, yeah, that's actually one that we weren't sure about, but we just wrote it down in the feedback form. Mm. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, we have time. Let's let's get into <laughs> it. Let's talk about why. You know, you know, or 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 sometimes if I ask them to give a, come up with examples of uh, of a you know of a reinforcement contingency or of a, a faulty stimulus control or you know anything that might be a little bit more complex from or schedule reinforcement, um, you know they 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 it's not as easy to to come up with those types of examples or any example than to just find information in the textbook. So those are the questions that I usually will kind of uh, highlight when I'm walking around and. Other times, you know, students will just raise their hand because I encourage that. I say, if you have questions, please just raise your hand. I'll come over and walk over to you. So it's nice because it, again, it gives me an opportunity to not only um, get feedback on the feedback forms at the end of each class session, but I also get to interact almost one-on-one with students uh, in that way. And in a group of, you know, the the classrooms that I teach in, I've been fortunate that they haven't been uh, too big. So um, the largest class that I've taught undergrad at UMass Lowell, I think, has been 35 to 40 students. Um, so, you know, it's still a, a decent sized group, but not like 100, 200 students in a, in a group. I do know other people who have done inner teaching and do inner teaching with large sections. And those are usually people that I know who also have um, a lot of TAs mm. uh, teaching that are helping with. Um, you know, walking around and facilitating discussion, um, because that's really an important piece, a key piece, I think, of um, the instructor shouldn't just kind of be hanging back and doing yeah, something yeah. else. They really should be kind of walking around. And how, how long is your course? Like each, like each course, like not the whole semester, but each, each, mm-hmm. each class or whatever. So I've done twice a week courses that meet for 75 minutes 
each time each class period and, and it, then there it, are and is that enough time yeah yeah it, it typically is hmm. i think um so what ends up happening in a so in one class period what will happen once we start kind of getting into this groove of we're doing inner teaching over the course of the semester i'll start with my clarifying lecture from the previous class session uh and then the next a uh, third of the class will be, okay, now you're going to talk about the new content that you just uh, prepared for on your prep with your prep guides. So I, I have to be uh, really careful about not going overboard with yeah, my yeah. lecture because again, I can, I, you know, I, I can go on and on depend, especially depending on the topic. And if they have questions during the lecture, we might get into it. And then that means that I'm cutting short their time to, discuss the new material mm. um, but typically I try to range my lecture from anywhere from 20 to 25 minutes the most in that 75 minute time period and then that gives us plenty of time to do the um, the the pair discussion the interteach uh, and then give them time to fill out their feedback form I usually give them like five minutes at the mm. end um, and then, you know, if there's any, uh, questions or things that we need to summarize before the class ends. So it is generally enough time. There are class periods that go for 50 minutes, uh, that are taught usually three times a week. So, um, that obviously means that you have less time, but in general, the recommendation is that if you just kind of split your time up accordingly, depending on the time that you have. Um, and that means that you may be covering less material, uh, in one class period too. So, you know, your, your prep guides, the content that you're covering, the page numbers, mm. if you're looking at a textbook, maybe fewer, if you have less time to uh, go over that material. And then there's also longer class periods too. So mm -hmm. the graduate course that I mentioned, you know, it meets once a week for uh, two and a half hours. Mm. So in, in those cases, you know, you may, um, you may either be covering more content or you just may be doing different activities over the course of uh, any given class period, um, because there is also fatigue that happens. Yeah. What I, in my experience, when you know when you're following this model, what I have noted is that um, it, there's this initial excitement because I I do a lot at the beginning of the semester to get students excited about following this model because it is different from what they're used to, and you know I put it in my syllabus. I spend a good portion of that first class period telling them about why I'm doing this, that it's not just something that, you know, I'm pulling out of a hat, that it's evidence-based, that I've done it for several years, there's research to support it. I'm doing it because I want them to succeed. I know that it's going to work, but that it is going to be different from what they're used to. And it will require them to spend time outside of class reading and doing essentially like these homework assignments. Right. And so initially there's this excitement and, um, that happens in, you know, over the first quarter of the semester. Mm. And then after, you know, around midterm, when things get busy in general in, in academia with, you know, midterms and things like that in other classes, there is fatigue. So students, um, I see more students that will just, um, you know, tell me, you know, I didn't do the prep guide, which I appreciate. I, I, I tell them like, if you're not prepared, it's okay. You can still stay in class. You can still participate. I give points for their participation when they mm. are in class and they're mm. participating in the interteach. And then if they aren't, if they don't complete the prep guide, they just get fewer points, but they can still stay and, and benefit from the lecture that I give um, before and if there's one afterward. Um, so, so students will tend to be more likely around that time period and then definitely towards the end of the semester to, um, to just, you know, kind of, I think, um, 
things get a little stale. I think that's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm used to this model, but I'm also tired. So mm -hmm. I've, um, I haven't actually done this yet, but in uh, conversations that I've had recently with um, a, a doctoral student that I'm working with now, who's going to be implementing inner teaching in his classroom next semester, I've talked about how it probably would be helpful to just kind of change things up from time to time mm. uh, and do something different, uh, especially if it's, you know, around the midterm or in, in his case, if it's going to be like a three, you're meeting three times a week, you know, maybe not doing and or teach every single class period because mm. it is going to be a lot. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I think, you know, the, the, the role of the instructor is it, it, you're doing a lot and you're also reading the feedback forms, right? So you're mm -hmm. getting that information from students and you want to be able to not only embed it into what you're, um, incorporating into your clarifying lecture, um, but sometimes students will will um, also get feedback about just the quality of the discussion. And that's something that I want to attend to, because if somebody's reporting that things didn't do things didn't go as well uh, um, as the other student, um, then I want to kind of pay attention to mm -hmm. whoever that student is to make sure that, you know, that if they need additional help or you know why that might be happening. Um, cool. Um is how, how, I'm just thinking of a class like 40 kids or 40 kids, 40 students. Um, and, um, uh, and so, you know, presumably that, the, you know, the, they're all in pairs. So say you have 20 pairs. Uh, uh, how do you, how do you assign those quality points? How do you, how do you, how are you able to get through all those groups and sort of figure that out? Yeah. So that's the other time commitment because <laughs> yeah, it does take time. And I think honestly, that's probably why, in the studies that have been published and uh, report use of inner teaching, um, what's been found is that the quality points component is not often used, mm. not often incorporated because mm. it, it does. So when I've done it, it required me to really. So on the feedback form, that's one way that, you know, student, I ask students to write who their partner was. So it's not anonymous. They tell me who they are and then I can match them up that way. But even in, yeah, even in a classroom of 40, it's still looking and, and wading through all the, that paperwork um, and being able to kind of match it up to the, you know, who the pairs were for that day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it requires that effort. And then even for assigning the pairs when they do the inner teach, there's different ways that I've done this. Um, so, so, and I think it, you know, varies also instructor to instructor, but one of the things that I've done is um, I change it up in um, being them being able to select who they can work with on some weeks. And then I, once I learn their names, I just will kind of, I use that as a way to practice their names. So yeah. I will look at them and say their name and then just kind of look across the room and say, okay, you're working with, you know, with Ben is working with Natalia today, you know, if, as I start to learn their names um, and because I want them to work with different people over the course of the semester, all, I've also done things like, okay, like, you know, depending on the color shirt you're wearing, uh, who you're working with, or uh, looking at last name, first name, first initial, last initial, middle initial, things like that, um, just so that they have an opportunity to work with somebody else. And then, you know, if we're doing this enough, it's inevitable that they will work with uh, other people over the course of the semester, but, or the same person, sorry, uh, at least once over the course of the semester. Um, recently, I've also heard, um, a colleague of mine actually make the argument that I actually want them to work with the same small group. So she, she does small groups. 
um, because that creates more of a community. They get mm. to know each other. Uh, they become more comfortable um, being able to kind of share. Uh, if they are, are unsure about something, maybe they'll, they'll be more comfortable in being able to kind of just be honest about it and not feel awkward that, mm. you know, that they don't know the right answer. Um, so, you know, I think, again, w- when we look at the data for this, there's really no strong uh, evidence uh, to support like that you must do the inner teach component or the pair discussion or discussion component in any certain way. It's mm-hmm. more about the fact that they are, that they mm-hmm. are talking to each mm-hmm. other and mm-hmm. sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it really sounds like, I mean, this, this is this. So these, these, have, these components, these uh, six components, were they in that original article? The, the, yes. The, and so when, when, the, when those two kind of came up with them, they, they didn't really have any sort of, you know, um, you know, evidence to show those were the ones that 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 that, no. that are the best, and so this is only. I mean, where where it's twenty twenty one. That article is two thousand and two, so we haven't even hit twenty years of doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like there's there's a lot of flexibility. It's not a rigid sort of mm-hmm. model, and you can sort of you know pull out, you know. And it sounds like that's exactly what you'd even do. So you'd kind of pull out certain components for different courses depending on 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 the format, and so it sounds like. You know, if folks are seeing inner teaching and going, you know, this this looks really complex. I don't think I can do all this. You don't have to do all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great, yeah, great, great way to put it. And then, you know, with the with the, um, you know, we were all we were all in academia, forced to go into virtual environments and yeah. online. I mean, online instruction, I think, has has been around, especially sure. with behavior analysis graduate programs. I think. Um, I I certainly feel fortunate that I had, you know, when March 2020 happened, I had already a lot of experience with um, both asynchronous and synchronous online courses, but also knew people that had zero experience with being in this kind of environment. And so there's there's, um, not a lot of publications, a handful, uh, a couple that I've published with my colleague, James Solner, who's at UMass Boston, and and other people that I know that have done a little bit more work on, you know, thinking about how do you how do you translate this into an online environment? Mm-hmm. And there's also going to be differences depending on if if it is synchronous or asynchronous. So asynchronous means you know that you're not meeting with the instructor in real time. Right. You're not required to meet with them in real time at any point over the course of a week or over the semester. Synchronous is more like Zoom meetings yes. that happen. Where, you know, I think in my experience with with these virtual synchronous uh, um, courses, they actually lend themselves really well to just being able to implement the the same model of inner teaching um, if you're trying to follow a same or similar model because you have the capability to do breakout rooms. So you can put students in breakout rooms and then kind of pop into the breakout room. Uh, you know, over the course of the time that you're in the class. And that's it's not exactly the same as being in the same environment as all the students, but it, it's a close approximation. Uh, whereas with asynchronous courses, that's um, more of a challenge in, mm-hmm. in thinking about the that uh, that that discussion piece, that in that inner teach or pair discussion component. Most asynchronous courses, at least in our program, and I think it's a common, component um, for some for asynchronous coursework that they may rely on discussion boards. So discussion boards are mm. a place where students 
get a question that uh, is a prompt for them to post an original response to the question. And then they may also be then required to engage, interact, respond to at least one classmate in any given week. Um, and, and so we do that with our uh, we have a certificate program in applied behavior analysis where it's a fully asynchronous program with seven classes. And we we incorporate these discussion boards and we've tried to also implement pieces of inner teaching with uh, development of prep guides now. And we have um, recorded lectures, but they're not truly clarifying lectures because they're recorded lectures that are based on just the content that instructors um, are highlighting for each uh, given week or each given um, unit of uh, of the course that we're covering. Um, so the discussion board is, I think, again, an approximation to getting students to talk to one another and share. But there's, I mean, at least I haven't found a good way to uh, really promote um, true discussion in a way that you know, students are talking back and forth to each other. Usually it's like you they, they post and they will respond and, mm -hmm. and do write really. Um, we're lucky that our students are, you know, they're, they're, they have clear guidelines and they tend to follow them. So they're meeting all the requirements for the discussion board post, but I don't think that it, it's just not in real time. So right. I, I think it's just, it's, 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 for me, it's still a little bit clunky to kind of figure out yeah, like, yeah. how is this actually impacting their learning? Um, so I think that's an area that I think there's still a lot of room for uh, research questions for sure. And then also just kind of thinking about how instructors can incorporate um, inner teaching into their online asynchronous courses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost, you'd almost have to get folks to like videotape themselves having a conversation and, and sort of upload it or something, mm -hmm. um, uh, which would be uh. a lot of a lot of effort on their part <laughs> yeah, too. And exactly I, and if students aren't read you know if when when they sign up for asynchronous online courses it's for a reason i think you know they they don't have the same right, flexibility right, right, or time right, right. to do the things that normally happen in traditional course. You know, brick and mortar courses so um so that's a challenge too because then in, implementing an additional requirement for the students that's not part of a asynchronous course, um, it does present challenges and barriers as far as administrative support. So, mm. you know, they don't want, they don't want students to be required to do something that they didn't sign up for. And that's understandable. Um, but again, I think, I think that's a piece that I'm, I'm still um, struggling with how to truly embed that piece into our asynchronous courses. And um, it's something that we're actively working on making right. continuous improvements to our courses. Cause I, I do think that that's an important component for any, for any class that anybody takes. You, you've, um, you've, you've, you've mentioned sort of the obvious now response effort to sort of go to do all this, you know, especially on, on the teacher's part. Um, why, why would they bother? Um, what, what, is, what, so what is sort of the, what, have there has there been research to kind of show, you know, that inner teaching actually produces better results than regular lectures? Mm -hmm. So why would they bother, like the, what, the instructor? Or like, the why 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 would why would the instructor bother using an inner teaching model in the first place if 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 they can just do their lecture because they know how to do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of data now since the seminal article was published on the outcomes for using 
inner teaching compared to, again, kind of a more traditional format that would be lecture, heavily reliant on lecture. Um, As far as student outcomes on, you know, there are limitations in this research and this body of work. So a lot of the dependent variables that have been evaluated really have been um, on quiz and, and test performance. So obviously that's not the only way that we evaluate student outcomes in a college college classroom. You know, there's writing samples, mm. there are mm. oral presentations, there are a variety of different things that yep. are embedded into your grade that you get at the end of the semester. Um, so I know of maybe one or two off the top of my head that I can think of uh, published, published studies that have um, looked at different types of dependent variables that are not tests or quizzes. Um, but overall, all the data that uh, we have really points to, yes, this is something that is better. Um, and again, because there's that flexibility built in, it means that you can take pieces of mm-hmm, it and start to mm-hmm. incorporate it a little bit at a time. I think the other piece that is um, something that that really drives um, my own um, motivation to continue to implement and make continuous improvements is the student feedback. Mm. So on my course evaluations, there is consistency in um, you know students saying, I, I thank you for incorporating this model into my mm-hmm. class, into mm-hmm. this class. I wish more instructors would do this because nice. it taught me how, uh, how, what I needed to do to be a better student. Mm. And uh, I've used this model or I've done the, you know, the things that I've learned in this class and I've, I've done it for my other classes, even though it's not required. I mean, these, you know, those are usually the top notch students that are saying like, I'm doing this for all my classes now because I see that it really is beneficial mm. uh, that I should be doing this for every class, that this is the, the you know, just a good way to study mm-hmm. and to do well. Uh, and to get the most out of being in class. So thank you for embedding it into class. And again, I I wish more people would do it. And then also, you know, there's, you know, and of course, when you get feedback from multiple people, there's always going to be also uh, feedback that sounds like, well, this was, you know, a lot of work, uh, a lot more work than any other class that I've been to. I don't think that, um, you know, it should be done in every class period. So, um, it is a lot more work. I think, you know, the recommendation for a three credit course for time spent outside of the class, I think it's, you know, between three to six hours. So right. when you think of, um, I think, you know, the demographics of our student body, at least at our, at the university where I teach currently, it's a four-year public uh, institution. Um, the large majority of our students are students who are also working part-time, mm-hmm. sometimes full-time, taking five classes on top of their, uh, you know, the the requirements for 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 their coursework, um, they they are parents and they are caring for family members. They have a lot of demands on yeah. uh, outside of their academic life. Um, so, you know, finding a way to be able to balance that is uh, really important. And then at the same time, knowing that this is a model that that works that's effective that's you know the really the best way for them to gain uh not only the knowledge immediately um but one of the things that hasn't been looked at is long term right so mm. how can we evaluate if you know if somebody uses this model to teach an intro to psych course or a learning and behavior class which is kind of an intro to aba yeah 
and comparing that to what might be like a more traditional approach, uh, what are the gains that are made and how long do they maintain over yeah. the course of, you know, a semester or maybe over the time that they're still in um, at the university? That's I mean, it's harder to um, plan for that. But I think that's an important piece that we don't know. We don't know long term outcomes for for using this approach. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in general, like I said, the, the course evals that I've gotten uh, over the time that I've been here at this university and in my previous institution, in general, by and large, have been very positive. Um, the students also say, like, it was a lot of work, but, you know, I I'm glad that I I was forced to do this um, because I learned so much. I learned so much from being in this class. So. Mm. Um, that really uh, motivates me to just yeah continue with the model, but also think about refining it and thinking about how to yeah. find a balance so that you know it is something that is um, that's doable for for all of our student body population. The third secret word is adaptation. Oh, that's really cool. Really, really interesting. Um, yeah. So. Definitely, lots of lots of lots of nice tidbits there. I think I think just uh, you know just to kind of wrap it up. I think the again just the the flexibility of it all. I mean, I think there's just a lot of really neat sort of things folks can just pull out, you know, to sort of make their own kind of courses a little better. You don't have to be a inter teaching master. You can you know you can do some of these little pieces. But I think that discussion piece is is probably. Mm-hmm. you know, is probably the big one, even if they haven't sort of proven that yet. Yeah, definitely. Just kind of looking at the time. It was a, it was a good, good, good conversation. We kind of jumped. We're, we're, we're approaching the hour and a half mark. I know you got to go soon. So I, I do want to kind of touch a little bit on um, kind of this, some, some, some of the work you're working on now. Uh, and in particular, uh, the paper we kind of referenced that you just put out in the spring. So what did Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to to have an opportunity to talk about that work. Um, so, you know, when I when I moved to New England mm. uh, from after having lived in uh, Southern Illinois and then in Ohio, um, I I knew that the area that I was moving to was um, there was a high density of <laughs> behavior analysts in Massachusetts alone and mm. certainly all over New England, but, you know, Massachusetts, it's one of the top States with, um, you know, BCBAs in comparison. I think it's, it's Texas and California are the other top, top three. Yep. And I, so I was really excited about, you know, the possibilities of being able to, uh, to not only collaborate with a variety of different people, uh, different colleagues, but also just being able to see the difference in the service delivery mm. that was happening in this area in comparison to Northeast Ohio, which at the time when I left, um, you know, was still an area that uh, really didn't have a lot of BCBAs. There weren't a lot of center-based services that were available I think there was maybe one one company in the entire uh, region uh, had to drive to Cleveland, uh, wow. which was an hour from where I was working um, to really see more of, of these types of services. And that's changed, you know, in the last seven to eight years. I think, you know, things are improving. But so when I moved here, I really anticipated that, you know, the service delivery um, would just be available to everyone, you know, mm. because there is. 
um, again, such a high density uh, of behavior analysts and a lot of companies mm-hmm. that are providing services. And what I what I realized pretty quickly was that in in the region that I'm in, which is the northeast part of the state, um, there actually were no center-based or uh, clinic-based services um, in in the city that uh, the university is based in. So we also don't have a university center. Um, um, but so, you know, Lowell is, it's a small city um, and the population, high, high po- population density, um, certainly not as big as Boston, but it, it is a city. And um, there's also a, a very diverse population um, you know, a lot of immigrants from uh, Cambodia, mm. uh, Latin America, mm. Africa uh, that are uh, living and working um, and citizens, residents of, of this area. Right. And so what what really struck me uh, was that, you know, kind of thinking about well, why I wonder why this is. Why hasn't why hasn't why haven't the uh, ABA center based clinic services expanded into this area? Mm-hmm. Um, now in 2021, um, there's, there's one that is, uh, <laughs> kind of expanding and opening up, um, they're, they're getting things off the ground. Um, and so it's still, it's still something that's a struggle and there are other pockets within the Northeast part of the state, um, other towns, um, that have a similar, um, similar experience that, that you know they don't have um, easy access to not home-based services, but the the center-based clinic services that uh, often are a, a nice complement to any type of home-based services that kids might be receiving, especially for early intensive behavioral intervention before they turn three. Um, those type of services are, are few and far between. So I got interested in kind of um, just uh, learning a little bit more about the health disparities that. Um, that exist within uh, racially and ethnically diverse communities, uh, not only here in in Massachusetts, but across the U.S., and really became familiar with the literature um, that that clearly documents disparities in diagnoses that are received by kids with autism, uh, specifically Black and Latino, Latinx um, families who have children um, you know, the, 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 there's a consistency in reporting that there are these disparities that kids from those racial and ethnically diverse uh, communities tend to receive a diagnosis much later than their white counterparts, um, usually at the rate, you know, by the time they enroll in school, kindergarten, five or six years old versus, you know, what what's, uh, would be ideal, which is around two or three years old. Uh, and so I got familiar with that literature and then, you know, started to kind of think about, um, additional data that would be uh, important to be able to disseminate about not only those disparities that um, Mm. we know exist, but then kind of thinking about why, what are the things that are um, preventing families from this specific demographic? And and in this paper, we looked specifically at Spanish-speaking Latin American families um, living in the region of, of the state. What are some of these factors that are contributing to them um, being able to access services? So we suspected uh, what some of them were already just based on the landscape, mm. but wanted to develop, um, wanted to, to get information from, from families. And so we developed yeah. a structured um, a structured interview um, and uh, set out to um, to try to interview as many families as we could. It, it took a, a 
bit of time um, to get the information that we wanted. There's different reasons, I think, why that happens. Um, mm. Sometimes people are hesitant to um, respond to a flyer if they don't know who it is, and which was the case with me. I was a new um, professional in the area, didn't have a lot of connections at the time that this was being done. And uh, so we, you know, we, we did get uh, information from 25 families and were able to kind of talk about their experience, not only with the diagnostic procedure and receipt mm-hmm. of services and uh, their perceptions of services that they were receiving them. Um, but um, one of the things that I guess the, the, the kind of the highlight of what I thought, uh, what I think is, is interesting and important to share related to this uh, study is that when when we looked at the the barriers that are um, sometimes preventing families to access service, uh, there were some of the things that we uh, knew kind of going in, but were yep. confirmed. So things like parents reporting that there weren't uh, 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 practitioners or professionals who spoke their their native tongue, mm. in this case Spanish. Um, also that, you know, that there just weren't services in the area geographically where they lived. Um, and then if um, sometimes also um, not knowing how to access the service. So some parents that we interviewed just didn't even know that behavior analytic services existed. They didn't know wow. about applied behavior analysis. Right. Um, and kind of thinking about, you know, how so what can we do with this information uh, and what can we do to help inform uh, people who are in the profession about being able to do more outreach to specifically to these communities. And around the same time that um, I was doing this work, I had a graduate student at UMass Lowell who uh, his mom is also a behavior analyst and uh, really has uh, had a mission from the beginning of the time that she was providing, she started to provide services to, to, be able to provide services to immigrant populations that otherwise would not receive these services. Wow. And she opened a company in East Boston, um, uh, want to say maybe five, five or so years ago. Um, and the name of it is a uh, Abatec, and that's in East Boston. Hmm. And the, the community that they serve really is fits this demographic of racially, ethnically diverse families, primarily immigrant families who uh, in the area where they decided to open up their company, where they opened their, their organization, um, there aren't any other uh, center-based services uh, specifically in the area. And I'm talking about, you know, really serving that community so yeah. people can walk walk to the place where they're dropping off their child to get the social mm, skills group mm, or, you know, to do the individual therapy. Mm. Uh, often, you know, we think about, at least, you know, before I started really getting into the to, to learning about some of the challenges that certain communities experience, you know, it's like, yes, you can, you can drive somewhere, uh, even if it's five miles, but <laughs> sometimes that's a challenge for yeah. people who don't have a car or if public transportation is, isn't going to facilitate them being able to easily get on uh, a train or a bus uh, to, to take their child to service. So the, the goal of, of this particular company and uh, is to serve people in, in that community. Mm-hmm. And um, what I've have found over the course of conversations with them, and because I'm, I'm really interested in uh, being able to uh, not only promote the work that they're doing, but also identify other people who are doing this kind of work is um, that there are companies that are doing 
uh, very similar work. And um, that is to be able to bring applied behavior analysis to communities that don't otherwise have access to these services. And sometimes they, again, they don't know about the service. Other times um, they are hesitant to, mm. um, to, to interact with professionals because they don't identify with them, even with an interpreter. A lot of things might get lost in translation. Um, they really uh, might feel like their child is best suited to only get services in a school setting because that's what they know about public education, that that's the place where you go to get all mm -hmm. your needs mm -hmm. met. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that isn't always the case, uh, depending no. on this, the, you know, the, the child and their needs. So, um, so right now, yeah, my goal is, um, you know, to be able to kind of highlight the work that, that, uh, companies like this are doing and then mm -hmm. bring attention to the disparities in ABA service delivery that you know, exist even in the U S I mean, there's, I think disparities that exist across the globe and sure. those are really important for us to address as a field. But I think that we also need to uh, highlight and attend to those disparities in access to ABA service delivery within the U.S. And um, so I'm working, um, I'm collaborating with this company and uh, some of their uh, professional development activities. So thinking about how we can integrate um, some some uh, research activities uh, into the work that they're doing specifically with training their staff. Mm. So their staff are also people that they hire that are from the community, which is really important nice. that the, you know, the direct care staff and um, primarily direct care staff, some of their BCBAs and some of their um, just administrative staff are uh, people who are representative of the community that, that they are serving. Yeah. Uh, and that's, again, something that they feel very passionately about. They're very commit. They're committed to uh, providing opportunities for people who are living and working in these same communities. And, and that just creates, I think, also an opportunity for their parents to feel more comfortable in being able to ask questions, to maybe challenge things that they wouldn't challenge otherwise. You know, mm -hmm. if they can communicate in their mm -hmm. native tongue to somebody, then they are definitely going to be more likely to um, to to not just agree with everything that somebody's telling them. Um, that's you know one variable, but I think it's an important one that. Um, sometimes gets missed again, if oh, you're working absolutely. with a translator and interpreter. Um, and yeah, so, you know, so, so the work that I'm doing is, is related to promoting, promoting the work, learning about other companies. I would love to learn about more companies that are doing this kind of work. I know they exist. Um, I've I've actually learned about a few of them out in California. Uh, we submitted a, a proposal for a panel discussion that we hope we will have an opportunity to talk more about this at the next ABAI conference in Boston. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I'd love to do is to just learn more about some of these, maybe it's individual service providers, maybe it's small companies, organizations that are doing yeah. this work, not only across the U.S., but but definitely also probably in Canada, where I, I know that you had said in our initial conversation, there's some similarities, um, similar experiences that happen uh, or that, ha that have been highlighted in recent years. Well, it's interesting, you know, you, like, I, mean, I think this is great work that you're doing and it sounds like the ABA tech folks are doing some really good stuff. Uh, but, you know, cause I, you know, I, I have that same image of sort of, you know, Massachusetts as being, you know, 
chock full of behavior analysts. Um, and, and, and Massachusetts is, is, is a tiny place. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just did a little Google map while you were talking about sort of Boston to Lowell and it was like 45 minute mm-hmm. drive or something, you know, yeah. depending on traffic and, and, and the fact that, you know, you, you don't have even some services up that way. And then, and then it comparing it to sort of here where, you know, Vancouver is kind of our major city in British Columbia and that's where the bulk of our, providers are there's some odd ones scattered throughout but mm. but we have the area called the north um of, of british columbia so still in the same province and that's 1500 kilometers from here mm. um you know so there's not going to be any there's definitely not going to be anyone driving for services up there and there's literally like three bcbas in you know in in a, in, a, in a sort of a thousand square kilometers and um and sort of trying to you know trying to kind of meet those needs and so you know, just just hearing that that I I, I think there's a, there's a theme of you know, and this is sort of I guess in any field really, but there's that theme of concentrating all your professionals in the one big city and and um, and and kind of not 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 moving around. Mm-hmm. Um, also makes me think about um, uh, episode uh, I think it was the ninth episode of of the podcast. I interviewed. Uh, She's actually from Washington. I think she's from Washington, but um, she's a, her name is a Addie Cardin, and she's a behavior analyst in Senegal, and uh, uh, and she's basically brought ABA to Senegal, um, um, and she's working in 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 the in the in the main city of of Dakar. And she's saying there's, there's something like six or seven. Or more, I think I feel like the number is even higher. I have to listen to the episode again um, uh, of dialects and languages and so many mm. different sort of things going on there. And she's, um, you know, um, you know, uh, 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 an American woman, not of uh, you know, American white woman in there trying to with translators trying to do what you're talking about. And really, her goal is the same. She's trying to train Senegalese people mm. to become, you know, behavior analysts because she's saying there's just so many barriers that she can't mm. she can't cross because she just has no idea. But and and it's not and and as you know, it's obviously not just language. It's not just no, it's not just speaking right. in the native tongue. It's if you speak the native tongue and you're and, and it is your native tongue, then you're also deeply immersed in that culture. And 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 it's those cultural components that are so that are so you know are so missing. Mm-hmm. I, I really like N- N- Natalia's um, uh, dissertation was on sort of you know um, uh, doing uh, basically putting in some cultural ad- adaptation sort of traditional behavior intervention so that you know folks would kind of understand what's what's going on and and be mm-hmm. able to kind of kind of relate to the materials. And so there's yeah there's just there's so much work to be done in, in this in this area. And the fact that North America is primarily immigrants. You know, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we don't, you know, uh, you know, exactly. we don't, you know, and, and, yeah. and, 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 and we're just missing, we're, we're, and we're just sort of, you know, um, you know, providing kind of these, um, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of whitewashed, you know, services um, to people that just don't, you know, you know, even, even if there were a clinic, like you said, you know, in Northeast Massachusetts for, for, you know, these families to walk to. You know, if those folks don't, if, if the people in the clinic don't speak Spanish and don't understand right. the culture, then mm-hmm. they're not going to be any more use than driving to Boston. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I mean, I think, and um, just one other thing that I want to mention about this, um, yeah. this disparity in service delivery, because it, it, I think I, I thought that it put an interesting lens to it. So there's um, a recently published paper by, Amy Drahoda and the colleagues, I can send you a link to yeah. it. 
that um, talks about the concept of service deserts and mm. service oases. Mm. And they use some uh, technology to evaluate uh, specifically something called geographic information systems to evaluate, you know, because it's one thing to say, like, for me, like, I haven't, uh, I don't have hard data to say for sure. I'm just basing it off of what I see. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the experience that I've had with um, speaking with many families um, and, uh, and uh, parents who, you know, uh, are really hungry for being able to have this kind of service for their ch children once they know about it. Mm. Um, so the concept of the service desert is you know, just, just what it sounds like. And they make an analogy to, um, I don't know if you've heard of the term food desert. No. So food deserts are um, a concept that also uses this kind of same uh, GIS, um, geographic information systems to evaluate if there isn't a supermarket or a grocery store within a certain walking distance of a community, but you know, you might find that they have um, like mini marts or a combination of like, you know, where they might, uh, somebody might be able to purchase um, uh, alcohol and then also like uh, really processed, highly processed foods, um, but no fresh fruits, vegetables, or, mm. um, you know, actual, yep. uh, actual food that you can, you know, healthy uh, alternative alternatives for, for consumption. So if, if they, if there aren't, uh, if there is not a grocery store within a certain uh, uh, geographical distance, they, they term it a food desert. Mm. So the same then applies to, Ser to service delivery and, hmm. and in this case service desert so if there isn't a uh, center or clinic that's providing these services uh, to people within a geographic uh, region then they are um they're you know terming them service deserts and and the the interesting thing about this and you know i think it's you know it, it, honestly not surprising but it was just kind of hard for me to to see it in black and white is that they also, so this isn't about less populated versus more populated areas. I think that you think about service deserts also for like, like you were saying, people who are literally out in an area that is not very densely populated yeah. and you have, you can have alternatives um, or not, depending on if they have accessibility to well, high speed internet, mm. you know, thinking about telehealth mm. services and things like that, or somebody traveling out to be able to provide the services to them. But it's also, so that's one component, but it's also just neighborhoods with low versus medium and high socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. So, you know, neighborhoods who have uh, a higher uh, level of uh, income and uh, uh, resources available to them also tend to have, uh, at least in this one study that was published, it was out of Michigan, that they were able to, to uh, really report on those differences in the high versus uh, low SES neighborhoods. And then, uh, you know, a correlation with neighborhoods with low SES and high population density. So I think mm. those are the neighborhoods that I'm familiar with here in Massachusetts that, again, it's highly populated, mm. uh, but it's low SES. Mm. And so those are the neighborhoods that, again, it's a it's a service desert. There's nothing there or there's one, one place that people can go and, you know, wait lists are a, a, a reality for everyone unfortunately like that's something that's going to happen um and, and it is happening and it's a, you know it's a, it's a problem for all families that um have a child with with autism um but then when you kind of compound that with um just lack of availability of like 
you know, you get a diagnosis and then like you're, you're, you're looking for uh, service uh, that, that you can access and nothing is available because mm-hmm. the, the thing that's available, you have to be able to drive your kid to, and you don't have a car or it's just too far and you, you, your other commitments prevent you from being able to do that. So it means that they're at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, trying to kind of close that gap a little bit, I think, is is something that is really important. And again, it's a, a mission that that this uh, company, Avatech, has. And, and again, I know of others, at least two others, um, but I know I suspect that there are more. Um, so finding a way to support um, these uh, practices, uh, these organizations, small companies, I think, is important for us as a as a profession because I think you know. It, it's not easy for somebody to do this um, as a business owner. It's a, it's a challenge. Um, and I've seen some of that firsthand with this company that I'm more intimately familiar with. Mm. Um, but I think that it's, it's important work that um, really important work that they're doing. And again, being able to disseminate this and um, even just disseminating the information about mm-hmm. behavior analysis by recruiting employees from the community inevitably then also be able to recruit um, more people into the field that are um, representative of, of those communities that, um, you know, have become uh, in the last couple of years, it's become very obvious that we need to diversify our profession. Yes. So, yeah. Well, and I think that's a, that's a great message to end on. It's, Oh, yeah, we're, we we are not we have not done a good job in terms of uh, you know incorporating diversity into our field, um, and uh, and 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 people are losing out big time. I, I mean, uh, our our the company I work for provides, and it's 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 a great service in the sense that we provide behavioral services for free um, to uh, mm-hmm. to families mm-hmm. often that are kind of you know in 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 sort of the you know, identities and categories you've been describing. Mm. Many of them don't even know what we do um, and, mm-hmm. and what that work is and what that involves. And, and really, we're just sort of a last resort. Um, um, often the first behavior analytics service they've had, you know, for their, mm-hmm. their 34-year-old child or whatever, um, because they mm-hmm. just never had access to services. And we're just, you know, uh, you know, and, and there's just so many demographics that we have to sort of offer services to. And mm-hmm. even our staff team, you know, doesn't meet that. We're doing our best to try to diversify our staff. And, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is, but it just, it does sound like kind of the work you're doing and, and um, might be a good model for a lot of other folks to kind of, uh, uh, you know, reevaluate how, uh, you know, services are, are sort of made available um, and, and where they're made available and how they're made available. Um, it's a, it's a big job, but it's an important one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge. And I think, you know, I'm not, I don't certainly, I'm not going to claim to have the answer sure. uh, or, you know, or, or to promote this is the only way or, or yeah. even the right way to, to do this. I think for me, it's more about having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, it's really important to, you know, we've, as a field, we've, 
we've started to have a lot of conversation about cultural competence, humility, mm-hmm. responsiveness. Um, and I think this is a piece of it that um, I, at least I haven't seen. Um, it's not a topic that's been broached as often as some of the other topics that are equally important. Um, so I think, you know, the first step is really, again, just to, to, to be able to have a platform to have a conversation about it. So thank you for, um, for giving me the opportunity, the time to, to be able to speak about this a little bit. I, I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you too. And, and for the listeners out there, uh, uh, Dr. Rosales has, has crossed the all important, uh, timeline um in, in our <laughs> podcast to uh to allow you to collect not one but two ceus for this episode so that's exciting <laughs> all right <laughs> <laughs> uh, so th- yeah thanks again for being on the show and uh, and uh, i'm sure uh, we'll be following your work and, and we'd love to have you back sometime my pleasure thank you ben <laughs>